Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Bromowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, earlier this morning, we heard some really interesting discussion uh, with Fed Chairman Jay Powell at the Peterson Institute talking about the impact of the coronavirus on the economy. And Chairman Powell warns of a broad virus danger, and he certainly batted down any uh, expectations of negative uh, rates out there, but certainly a somber longer-term view from the chairman. To get a sense of kind of what some of the details are there that we should be paying attention to, we welcome Neil Dutta, head of U.S. Economics at Renaissance Macro Research. So, Neil, thanks so much for joining us. What was a key takeaway or key takeaways for you from what we heard from Chairman Powell this morning? Well, I think the most important takeaway is that he's leaning into fiscal authorities quite hard. Uh, he sounded uh, pretty somber and, um, you know, downbeat about the uh, outlook, in my view. I think he kind of needs to do that. It's almost by design. If he sounds upbeat, that takes the pressure off and the heat off the fiscal authorities. If he sounds more negative, um, I think he keeps the pressure on them. So, um, so to me, that was that's what was important. Uh, I also thought it was quite interesting. They talked about how uh, liquidity crises now can evolve into solvency problems later. Um, again, that sort of speaks to this idea that uh, the less they do now, the more pain there can be later. So that kind of speaks to the sort of second and third order effects from the initial shock. Um, that I think a lot of people are worried about right now. So um, I thought it was a pretty, um, you know, I mean, like like I said, I think think he's negative. I think it's by design. Um, I think think it's important for fiscal, um, you know, for our politicians to kind of um, not declare victory uh, too soon. And in my view, that means really two things. In the most immediate term, um, it means we need some kind of a state and local aid package Uh, you know, from the federal government uh, to kind of uh, backstop the revenue shortfalls uh, that states are seeing. And um, I think, number two, in the summer, when things presumably will feel a little bit better than they do right now, um, we've kind of set up a cliff-type scenario with with respect to fiscal policy because we're going to see a robust unemployment insurance program evaporate for many millions of people. And uh, these are individuals, in many cases, that um, work in industries like leave and hospitality, retail, that will be slow to come back. Um, And they also have very high propensities to consume. They usually spend what they get. So um, those are the two things, I think, on the fiscal side that I'm kind of keeping an eye on right now. And I think Powell's right to kind of say that, um, you know, while there are costs to doing this, Um, the benefits probably outweigh the cost at this point. Neil, I love speaking with you because when I sometimes feel gloomy, you often bring an optimistic view to the table. And I'm trying to find the optimistic view right now, (laughs) especially after Fed Chair Powell's uh, testimony. I know that this is by design, but some of the statistics themselves, I'll throw out one. Among people who are working in February, almost 40% of those in households making less than $40,000 a year had lost a job in March. Meanwhile, Stan Druckenmiller, uh, the billionaire who has been very successful, said that the risk-reward calculation for equities right now is the worst he's seen in his career. What do you have to say about that? So I think um, I don't buy into this idea that uh, the markets have priced in some kind of a 
you know, glory V-shaped style recovery and it's off to the races. Um, I think that's sort of a red herring that people are talking about. It's like everyone's looking for a V-shaped recovery except for me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. I mean, I think the markets and the economy are more or less telling you the same thing. We've done a reasonably good job of clipping off the left tail risk scenario. I don't think an L-shaped recovery is likely to happen on the other end of this. At the same time, we've opened things up a little. Things have loosened a bit. Um, the process is going slowly and gradually. And we've had our initial bounce off the lows, and we're kind of treading water. So I think the stock market and the economy are more or less giving you the same message. Uh, you asked for something optimistic. Please. There's always good news somewhere, Lisa. And, um, and, 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 I, and I'll tell you that, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that the economy bottomed sometime in the middle of April, meaning the level of activity isn't getting any worse. If you look at specific sectors, notably housing, there's some evidence that things are reviving a little bit more rapidly than originally anticipated. As an example, mortgage purchase applications are up now four weeks in a row. This preceded the, the sort of expiration of some of these formal formal shelter-in-place orders, right? So um, the housing market recovery started even before these orders went, you know, expired, and it's still recovering. It's up four weeks in a row. Um, we've recouped about two-thirds of the loss since mid-March. So... Um, that's that's a surprise, um, and it's you know I mean uh, the fact that home buying demand has picked up I think it's a, it's a good yeah. thing, uh, it's an interesting sign. So it's something we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, Neil Tutta, thank you so much for being with us as always. Uh, it's always wonderful to get your perspective, Neil Tutta, head of U.S. economics at Renaissance Macro Research. And I will tell you on the housing market, Paul, I wonder how bifurcated it is with non-urban centers getting the bulk of the purchasing right now. We hear so much about this, and Denise Pellegrini was talking about this, how people are looking to get out of the city right now, perhaps because they've been sheltering in place in a studio or concerned about (laughs) the density factor. Uh, But that seems to be something persistent. I wonder if it's going to... But you're a diehard city person, Lisa. You're not considering leaving the city. Oh, I'm I'm born and raised here, and <laughs> I've lived outside of the city. But you know, I for for the time being, I'm here, and it'll be interesting to see how the city transforms, especially if it gets cheaper uh, for individuals to live here. How that affects things, especially. Uh, I'm not going to get into it. Vanguard is known as the firm that really pioneered the index fund that really has led the charge into passive investing. So it came as a surprise to some people in February when it announced a partnership with HarborVest, a strategic partnership to provide qualified investors with access to private equity, which is decidedly not indexable in the same kind of way as public equities. The question is, then the world got turned on its head. What is the opportunity now in private equity? Joining us now, I'm so glad to say Fran Knairi, Principal and Global Head of Private Investment at Vanguard. Fran, thank you so much for being with us. I would love to start just first with how strong or weak demand has been for private equity at a time when some of the smaller businesses that these firms invest in are getting incredibly challenged by the pandemic and related shutdowns. Uh, Yes, thank you. And um, the, the supply coming in and the client interest coming in continues uh, despite, as you mentioned, the health crisis and the market volatility, um, I think a lot of investors see the case for private equity. Um, the case also has extended in bull and bear markets. Uh, so private equity tends to be a replacement to public equity or a complement. 
And we've seen in other bear market environments where private equity has held its own. So, Frank, give us a sense of kind of the thinking behind at, at Vanguard. Again, as Lisa was uh, saying earlier, you guys are the big, the giant player in indexing. And what's the thinking behind getting into the private equity business? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think most people may now know us as indexing, but when we started Vanguard, Jack Bogle started Vanguard, we started as an actively managed shop, and our first offerings were active uh, in nature. And so while we get very well known for our indexing, and we're very proud of our indexing franchise, we are actually one of the largest active investors on the public equity side. We're also by far one of the largest active managers on the fixed income side, both taxable fixed income and tax exempt. So for us, we've always been a a very large, vibrant, active shop, and private equity just extends that from the public markets to the private markets. Fran, this was the rage heading into this crisis or or right before it, where a vast amount of money, record sums, were flooding into private equity firms, uh, private debt funds. The idea being that public markets were so flush with cash that really the private markets were the ones that still held opportunity. I'm wondering, though, liquidity and solvency are different. And there are people who are saying that private equity hasn't sold off to the same degree that uh, public markets have, but it's simply a function of they're not trading as much. Would you agree with that? Do you think that private equity has seen the same scope of declines? We just may not be able to see them in the same way? Yeah, that's probably correct. There's three maybe main components. One, you have appraisal-based valuation versus with the public markets are priced instantaneous for liquidity at that second. So it's the price that will clear supply and demand, whereas private equity is a much longer duration investment. So the investors and the investments themselves are much longer duration investments, and they don't trade. So a a very small amount trades relative to its float, which is very different from the public equity market. So, Fran, give us a sense of kind of as you look at the market today, it must be really difficult to get a sense of where true value is. How are you and and your team kind of trying to work through that challenge? Well, the great thing for us at Vanguard, we launched on March 5th. And so for us, it's for for us, it's a new. uh, So we actually have no money in the ground. So we actually see this as very opportunistic for Vanguard investors. Because we're we're not we were not buying in November, December, January. Uh, we would have if we were in the market, but we are entering actually at a pretty good time because the valuations have reset. So, where are you seeing the potential opportunities here? So, we very much like our roots on the public equity side and public fixed income side. Our offering is going to be very broad based, very global. Um, we'll likely have 30 to 40 uh, GPs inside this offering with seven to 800 different holding companies. It'll be globally diversified. I I don't want to interrupt you, Fran, but this sounds a lot like an index fund of private equity. Is that what it's aiming to be? 
did we just lose Fran? <laughs> did he just hang up on that question? He was saying, um, I don't think so. I think we just lost him. But that's sort of the question that some people have is that, are we going to end up getting some sort of indexing factor among private equity funds? And could Vanguard's entrance into it be that? I mean, that's not what he said. Uh, we didn't get his response on that. We will have to have him back right. to discuss it because it is a really interesting point. In other words, how much mainstreaming are you going to end up seeing? in the private equity industry, Paul. Yeah. And, you know, some people, you know, when they see Vanguard and, and the likes of the Vanguards, you know, get into private equity, they say, uh-oh, top of the market when you, you know, there's, as you were mentioning earlier, Lisa, there's so much capital flowing into the private equity space in the in the period before the pandemic. And there's a, not that many places to find good deals. And we saw this cash kind of piling up on the sidelines. And uh, the question is, is there too much cash chasing too few deals, uh, pushing the prices up and returns down. I think yeah. the days of getting, you know, 20% IRR, those are certainly gone. Uh, and the question is, can you get double digit uh, consistent returns in the private equity market? If anything, though, Paul, I will say that this downturn gives certain private equity firms certainly raising funds now a better chance of getting yep. that 20% IRR going forward, just given some of the valuations. Yes. And I think we're seeing a lot of money flow into distressed credit funds. And, uh, you know, you really, if you can do your credit work, uh, you know, certainly some returns there. So we thank Fran, Fran Canary, Principal and Global Head of Private Investments at Vanguard, uh, joining us here to talk about the private equity business and the opportunities in a pandemic world. This is Bloomberg. Well, people are starting to debate how this coronavirus and the will change uh, economic, will change consumer behavior. Is it changing consumer behavior and to what degree and across which uh, activities, you know, people are, you know, as it relates to purchasing goods and services, people are doing more and more of it online. And then when they do, in fact, venture out to the stores, are they using more or less cash? debit cards, credit cards, all that type of things. Fascinating to see how this pandemic will impact consumer behavior going forward. As we think about payments and how we actually buy stuff when we're out in the stores, uh, we're really fortunate to have Linda Kirkpatrick, president uh, for the U.S. issuers at MasterCard, uh, joining us. So, Linda, give us a sense of what you're seeing in terms of the credit and debit card activity on your network. How is consumer behavior changing? Thanks, Paul. Uh, well, we've seen an increase in contactless payments in particular over the past couple of months. And, uh, you know, the, the payments industry has been investing in contactless capabilities for a while. So, Linda, uh, and the so increase- I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, define what is contactless payments, because I find that it's much less prevalent in the U.S. than it is, say, in Europe. Yeah, that's right, Paul. So contactless is where you have technology that's embedded into a typical credit or debit card that allows a consumer to tap their card at a terminal uh, rather than inserting it or swiping it and uh, avoiding contact with the terminal altogether. So it's using technology that prevents that contact with the, uh, with the register. And it's just as safe and secure as Every other product uh, on the market, in fact, it, it has the safest uh, uh, technology embedded into, into the card. Uh, and it's really a fast and easy way for consumers to go about their day and their purchases uh, uh, in general. So in, with, those, with those payments, we've seen them increase over the past few months. Uh, and, and we believe this is a, a reflection of the current environment. Uh, we wanted to really under, better understand how these consumer behaviors were changing and how we can support consumers and merchants as we move through uh, COVID-19. So we actually conducted a survey, 17,000 people, 19 countries around the globe, 
And uh, of those we surveyed, nearly 80% of consumers say that they're now using some form of contactless payment. And they cite uh, safety, health, and security reasons as, as key drivers of that. And, you know, MasterCard's own data shows that uh, our contactless transactions grew twice as fast globally and three times as fast in the U.S. as non-contactless transactions in in grocery and drugstores in particular. Uh, So we are seeing uh, a rise in contactless both here in the U.S. as well as markets outside the U.S. Even in in our first quarter, contactless transactions grew 40%. I'm wondering, Linda, how easy it is to determine the shifts in the market right now, given how many people are staying at home and aren't spending as much. And if you could just speak to to the not spending as much aspect a little bit as well, that might give people a sense of just how much spending has contracted. Yeah, you know, what we're seeing with respect to consumer spending is it's really being focused in the food and pharmacy areas. So people are still absolutely spending. If you look at our, our transaction data and our purchase volume data, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing spends and we're seeing growth uh, as of the end of the first quarter and, and into the second. But we're seeing it very concentrated in categories that are uh, everyday items and necessity items. And uh, certainly digital and e-commerce transactions have grown exponentially as well. So we've really seen a shift from uh, certain categories to other categories, uh, but we we are seeing sustained periods of of spend and growth. And again, contactless uh, ways to pay are are really on the rise because it, you know, it's a product that lends itself to an environment where, uh, you know, the CDC and other health officials are encouraging consumers not to come in contact with with cashiers and terminals. It's it's really the right Right. product for the right time. Linda, I'm wondering how difficult it is to get some of the stores that you partner with to invest in contactless equipment now, given their cash struggles. Yeah, so the good news is that um, most merchants in the U.S have invested in contactless capability already. Uh, they've upgraded the terminals to accept chip several years ago. And uh, at this point, we have 60% of our volume at MasterCard, actually close to 65%, happening at terminals that have contactless capability. So acceptance, by and large, is, uh, is there. Uh, and we actually uh, have great commitments from uh, are issuing financial institutions to issue those contactless cards, and many of them now are already in market. Uh, so we're now seeing the benefit of that investment on the merchant side and the bank side as consumers are using these products more readily. You know, we wouldn't have anticipated when we uh, started this journey uh, several years ago toward, you know, chip and contactless that, uh, that we would have a pandemic that would make it ever more relevant. But, but certainly now we have the health benefits in addition to safety and security benefits uh, that contactless bring. Linda Kirkpatrick, thank you so much for being with us, president of U.S. Assures at MasterCard based in New York. Uh- Well, shares of Grubhub yesterday surged as much as 39% after reports that Uber was planning to buy the food delivery company Grubhub. The question is, A, will it get through? And B, what is the goal in the combination of both of these companies? Joining us now is Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So what would Uber be looking to do with an acquisition of Grubhub? 
Sure. So uh, one of the things that they are targeting is, you know, uh, positive EBITDA profitability. Obviously, they set the goal for 4Q20. We don't think that's going to happen. Even By the way, hold on a second. Yeah. I'm not letting yeah. you get away with that. Basically, yeah. they're hoping to actually turn a profit at some point in life. Well, they were trying to, but I think they were hit really badly with this COVID situation. Uh, Dara said his business is recession-proof, but it seems, uh, you know, the volumes are down about 50 to 60% in core ride-sharing. And now it's a matter of, can this be a growth company? And, and investors are rethinking the whole notion of, you know, Uber having a long addressable market where it can keep growing, you know, 20, 30% every year. That is out of the window simply because ride-sharing at its core is declining 50%, like I said, in volume, and we don't know when it will come back. Yes, the social distancing will be in effect for the foreseeable future. And even if things open up, the volumes are not going to come back right away. So we are talking about a deceleration, a pronounced deceleration in top line. And I think this is just an attempt to boost inorganic growth. So Grubhub kind of gives them $1.5 billion in revenue. It helps them consolidate market share and really lower cash burn. That's key because they were losing 50 cents on every dollar of revenue in Uber Eats. So this kind of at least helps them lower that cash burn, which I think is extremely important given, you know, the concern around liquidity for both Uber and Lyft. So Mandeep, is this, you know, acquisition, potential acquisition of Grubhub, kind of a tacit admission that the core ride-sharing business will not return to the growth rates it was before the pandemic, that maybe consumer behavior will be permanently altered. And one of the areas that may be altered is this whole concept of you know, ride sharing. I wouldn't call it permanently altered, but I think for the foreseeable future, ride sharing isn't coming back to the historical levels we have seen. And the fact that Uber is doubling down on food delivery, which is a lower gross margin business, where they're losing money just goes to show how desperate they are to at least push that top line. Because the last thing you want as Uber, you know, a company that has got scale and network effects is to have, you know, decline in top line growth. And and that is very much of a possibility if this doesn't happen, because uh, the core business is, like I said, uh, declining 50%, at least for the next two quarters. There's a question, Mandeep, it's a larger question about whether the sharing economy that was touted by so many of these tech startups and growth companies is dead in an era post-pandemic. When you talk to individuals and when you look at the actual traffic at Uber and Lyft and how it's uh, starting to recover in places that might be exiting the lockdown, there aren't many where Uber and Lyft have (laughs) presence, but just in terms of the path forward, what are you hearing on that front? Well, so look at Airbnb and, you know, uh, pretty much everybody, uh, you know, on the food delivery side is also part of gig economy. And I think they do serve a purpose. At the end of the day, they're all part of going digital and, you know, helping improve utilization. The problem is just the cash flow. These business models are just not sustainable. And I think what COVID situation has done is really brought the whole aspect, you know, of these companies just burning through cash quarter after quarter, 
not even trying to generate a profit. And really, uh, now the question is, who can hold on uh, to the cash for long enough? And we think Lyft, for example, is really in a precarious situation where they're burning about $200 million of cash every month. And they have, you know, about $2.5 billion in liquidity. So it just takes them uh, up to a year if the situation doesn't change. And I, I think liquidity is really uh, the main focus right now for investors. Who can survive this period, which is at least going to be, you know, uh, I, I believe six to uh, 12 months, if not Paul, you know Paul, you know what this feels like to me? It what? feels like people are going to be paying a lot more to get their food delivered. That's just yeah, my I think, gut I feeling. Think so. Yeah, exactly. And and it kind of goes to the point, uh, Mandeep, as we compare Uber to Lyft, which investors are, are want to do, you know, Lyft, the, the Lyft story was we're simplified, we're core ride sharing um, to the extent that that business may be permanently altered or maybe not permanently, but certainly significantly offered over a longer period of time. What's the feeling about the Lyft story now? Is it still the cleaner story or is it still the one that needs to diversify? Yeah, I think the diversification aspect is uh, not being diversified is clearly hurting them right now. And I'll compare, you know, Lyft to somebody like Amazon. You know, both Uber and Lyft have been uh, cutting uh, costs. They've been laying off employees, whereas Amazon is hiring 100,000 employees. Both of them are doing last-mile delivery. So, and, and granted, uh, you know, Lyft is a more uh, one-sided business model where they're just doing ride-sharing, but why can't they adapt? I'm just kind of really baffled here that they weren't able to, uh, you know, offer grocery delivery quick enough to offset the de decline in ride volume. Why did they have to just throw in the towel and start laying off people? And and I, I think their business model, their uh, kind of premise all along was personal mobility. And they haven't really fulfilled it. This is just you know, a one-dimensional company just doing ride-sharing where they're, they're supposed to have a lot of data where they can uh, anticipate the demand and adapt, you know. They should have been able to do grocery delivery, food delivery much more quickly than, than they have. And, and that, to me, is surprising here. Mandeep Singh, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you bringing us up to date on Uber, Grubhub, Lyft, and all that ride sharing. Uh, it's uh, going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Mandeep Singh, Senior Tech Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And it's interesting, Lisa, you know, I kind of was always joking with friends. I just said, you know, Uber and Lyft, that whole ride sharing thing was one of the greatest inventions of all time, never thinking that it would have to deal with something like a pandemic and how that might, you know, really, really alter the way people uh, do some of these uh, sharing activities like rides and or Airbnb. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to make sweeping characterizations or extrapolations from this moment because the world changes when there is some sort of vaccine and people feel comfortable going out and about. That's, you know, the big caveat here. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, uh, Uber definitely du doubling down on that diversification to food delivery business to Uber Eats with potentially uh, an acquisition of competitor uh, Grubhub. So we'll follow that story as it develops going forward. Along with Lisa Bromowitz, I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.